Welcome to episode, I don't know what number episode it is, after the French Open. It's no challenges in raining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by Courtney Nguyen again. Hi, Courtney. How are you? Hello, Ben. I'm doing well. How does one say hello in Riga, Latvia? I think you say, I should know this, but I haven't said, I just say hello to indicate that I speak English. (laughs) But but I think it's like sveiki or sveiks, depending on the gender of the person receiving the hello. I'm not going to try to learn Latvian grammar, but it's interesting because there's like three languages here. That among you know people even in downtown that are used equally is English, Latvian, and Russian, Ooh. and like so they get the they guess wrong about my uh, about my language of choice and ability most of the time, and I'm just surprised because there are no like Russians or Latvians walking around with my hair. Like I was going to say, I, thought, I would think that <laughs> I would think tell. the gingerness would give you away as being not. Latvian the gingerness but also but also just more like the unkemptedness of it. yeah they all they all look like they were recently in military service hair wise ah uh, fair you point. know which is yeah. fine maybe they were and that's great it's patriotic but thank you I, for your I, service yes um but i don't have that but anyway it's been it's been lovely here you are back home we are far apart we're like 10 time zones apart so this episode has been a bit of a struggle getting our schedules aligned but we are together now hopefully you're enjoying some rest back home very much so it's um obscenely hot um for some reason it only just dawned on me that it's june already <laughs> like that 2017 is almost it's like more than half over which is nuts um and uh and yeah the last couple of days it's been over 100 degrees out where i am Ooh. um uh, but the nice thing is we got a new roof and like it is noticeably cooler inside the house because as I've told people a gazillion times, I don't, I never grew up with air conditioning and this house doesn't have air conditioning and it's perfectly fine and pleasant. So I'm a bit shocked by it all, but yeah, it's uh but otherwise, you know, you don't really feel temperature when you're unconscious and sleeping. So it's fine. Yeah, no, I definitely, I've been doing a lot a similar, of that. similar hibernation period after 15 long days of slamming, mostly pretty long days, not too much. I mean, obviously first big picture things, the French Open this year, much more pleasant and less traumatic than last year's weather-wise. I don't look back at it and just sort of shudder at the memories of misery like I did for 2016. So that's Most nice. Most definitely. So that's a, that's a start. Overall, before we get to results, overall takes on just sort of the, the mood of the, the slam. The mood of the slam. I mean... Or just you, what you'll remember it for, if you can separate that from results, which we'll get to, obviously, separately. Or maybe you can't. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I can. I mean, I'll be completely honest. I mean, once the results kind of came in and went on the men's side, at the end of the day, it was what we thought it was. Mm-hmm. So, Roger, you know, uh, Rafael Nadal comes in as the heavy favorite, kind of takes care of business. I think the only big surprise throughout the tournament is maybe that Andy Murray played better than expected towards, you know, the middle to end of his tournament. But... Otherwise, an absolutely dominant La Decimation um, hmm. by Rafa Nadal. So that kind of, I guess, inoculated the two weeks 
before in a lot of ways because it just felt like a coronation ceremony. We just kind of kept walking yeah. towards it and there really weren't any plot twists, I thought, on the men's side. And then for the women, the ultimate plot twist came at the end. And so, like, you know, in that way, it kind of also inoculates the first two weeks of the season, uh, uh, the other two weeks because it, it was like a, it was almost like a completely last minute rewrite of the script and you're still kind of processing it at least I am in terms of what did those two weeks in Paris mean for the women only because I think for the men it pretty much we've seen that show before yeah we've you know? seen that show before we own all nine previous seasons of it on dvd <laughs> it's taking up a lot of shelf space and more and more and you're right that it was a coronation ceremony because i'm trying to think of what oh what surprised me what actually surprised me was like the trophy ceremony where they had another replica trophy ready to go and um, oh the whole tony nadal thing a, i was a, like oh plot twist those were the twists like after the tournament <laughs> ended and they were pretty minor just sort of like fun guest stars or like cameo appearances or something but let's start with the men um because i think there's a lot less on the men the men's tournament, uh, we, and we did a podcast about a lot of the tournament already, which hopefully you guys have seen and listened to as a sort of stopgap for us. We did with our Dutch tennis covering buddy, David Avakian, 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 and uh, about most of the tournament. And I think we were saying similar things there, and I don't think there was, the finals changed it or the semifinals or whatever had not happened up to that point. I thought this men's tournament was incredibly boring. <laughs> like, I thought it was a... There were some, there were some, a couple interesting early first week storylines that didn't have title relevance. Like I'm thinking of Steve Johnson, who was obviously like a very compelling story with his father just having passed away a couple weeks before the tournament and him having a very emotional run and playing long matches and having, you know, emotional press conferences and all that sort of stuff. And so that was a captivating story, but it didn't know what, I mean, Steve Johnson was never on a list of contenders to win the title, um, whether, whatever the circumstances would have been. Um, and then it kind of got to the late rounds and the matches weren't, with the exception of Murray Vavrinka, which was pretty good through four sets and terrible in the fifth, or just not competitive in the fifth. Please don't mention that match. <laughs> talk about, talk, go, are, through, go, go through. It's a really triggering event for my please, parents. Can, can, can you please talk through uh, that? Why? Because I know you were on radio for the entire thing, were you not? I was. I was on Radio Roland Garros for the entirety of the Andy Murray, Stan Wawrinka, semifinal, which lasted for four and a half hours. Oh, and and you're on during changeovers too, is the yeah. There's no break. There's oh. no break, and it was an odd match. I mean, it it's not about. I mean, it just it was a match that never really bubbled until it was bubbling, and by then it like it's like a souffle. Like it just like happened all of a sudden, and you're like, oh. So like, you know, Andy define, and, define bubbling. Well, I mean, can. like Andy Murray was kind of like doing his thing and, and there were little ebbs and flows, but they weren't. This is from a completely commentary perspective. There wasn't yeah. much to say. Like you were like, OK, well, either Stan's missing or I'm describing to you tactically how Andy Murray is setting up these points so that Stan is missing or Stan Bobbinga is not missing. And there's nothing that Andy Murray can do about it when Stan is hitting like this. And it was just an alternating back and forth of those two like narratives and it's not even a narrative i mean it's true it's of those not two like patterns. a story i mean yeah. yeah those two patterns exactly and then all of a sudden like you know as andy murray looks like he's in control i mean stan wawrinka defi- decides to ostapenko and then just like trees for for the next you know about 45 minutes to an hour 
and in that final set, it was just a very awkward, like, I don't know what to tell you guys. Like, Andy's tired and, you know, Stan's hitting from every single corner. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so it just kind of like fell flat in the end, um, just the way that it ended. I mean, the fourth set was really quite, quite good and interesting, but even then it was like, it was just a a quick blink and it was over in a lot of ways in terms of how it just kind of played out and how the momentum shifted and stuff. And so, yeah, it, it just was a very grueling four and a half hours. And I just remember getting off of that and probably for at least two hours after that, I was unable to have a coherent conversation with another human being. And every single time somebody walked up to me to start talking, I like ran the other way. I was like, please don't talk to me. It was really genuinely traumatic. (laughs) (laughs) It was not pleasant. The things you do for men's tennis on the side, I tell you. Well, the reason why is because I needed the days off to do the women's semifinals and the women's finals, obviously, for WTA. So I was like, okay, so I'll I'll jump in and do whatever you need me to do for the men. And trust me, I love doing Radio Roland Garros. It's actually one of the highlights of my year. I, I love being on radio with Gigi and the whole team. And it's great. And I'm not complaining about it at all. But that four and a half hours, it just left me a bit um, like punch drunk for at least the ent- the rest of the night. Right. Well, it's good that you got your punches in there as opposed to, I don't know, some sort of the, you know, 9-7 in the fifth match or whatever the, you know, Ferrer-Young first round match was. Ooh. It was like 13-11 or something. No because thanks. that was the only, because the thing with the men's tournament is they're just like, because Nadal was so good, there weren't any, and he was obviously the player to beat by far coming in. There weren't ever any compelling matches that really felt like they were in a tournament who won the tournament. Yeah, the stakes felt low. And that was aside from aside from the emotional stakes, you know what I mean? Like it was an emotional tournament and a lot of things happened. And, you know, I think the only the only match or guess couple of sets, really, that felt like this could be determinative one way or the other was Del Potro Murray. So just Mm -hmm. the first two sets of that match and and that That felt like, yeah, it was good and it was interesting. And you felt like whoever came out of that match, it was really, you know, it that player's tournament was going to have legs, um, which is true. I mean, Andy making the semi, I think he would have taken that immediately if you would tell him that at the start of the tournament. Um, but other, outside of that, yeah, it was it was hard to uh, to really dig in into the second week. Like you said, the first week had some good storylines, but the second week was a bit uh, a bit of a foregone conclusion. And and yeah, and not to get to we're not not getting the women yet, but it was such an opposite from the women too, because for the women. You would you'd have to sit there watching like every point of Modenovic Rogers, knowing like, oh my God, this could change everything in this tournament. And the men just didn't have that that feeling. And like I said before, the none of the matches in the later in the last few rounds were had good endings. The Murray Vavrinka had a good sort of opening or a tight, I should say, competitive first four sets of maybe varying qualities you were saying. But all the matches, I'm just looking at the draw here on Wikipedia. The fi- and I tweeted this stat too, but I just think it's illustrative of what kind of letdown it was on the men's side. The final set scores, so whether these were third, fourth, or fifth sets in the quarters, semis, and finals, were 6 1, 6 1, 2 0, retired, 6 love, 6 1, 6 love, 6 1 in those seven matches. Like there was just nothing. And that's a credit to Rafa. And Rafa was at some of his best. Like he, the way he absolutely diminished and la decimated Stan in the final was almost like Serena levels of untouchable and just sort of let me just put on a show for you know 90 yeah it it felt quite uh globetrotters versus Washington generals you know exactly yeah 
against a guy who we haven't seen be Washington Generals very often. Right, you know, finals, he, he, was he definitely didn't. Three and he yeah. definitely didn't know what hit him um, and was like, well, this is a brand new experience, <laughs> <laughs> which was kind of like a very like weird, like humble braggy moment for Stan Wawrinka. You know, it's like because I was calling the final. It's like Stan Wawrinka's never felt like this before. <laughs> like he's never been in a Grand Slam final and not just been in a losing position, but being completely, you know, torn apart limb by limb, um, you know, tennis in tennis terms. But um, yeah, the most surprising and the most, I think, disappointing of the second week because yeah it was kind of going forward with Rafa and I to say that things weren't compelling is not to say at least for me to say that the second week wasn't compelling is not to say that like it wasn't fun to watch Rafa do his thing <laughs> like right. I was like dang that's like it's cool like when Rafa plays like that it's just it's it you know you have to smile because it, you it, it's like what Roger does when he's playing at his best it just looks dope you know, like it, it just looks cool the way that like he's able to, to just kind of play smash mouth clay tennis in a lot of ways. But the fact that there were all these kind of like intriguing matchups, but they just didn't yield anything, I think yeah. is what was disappointing. Right. So like team Djokovic. Oh, yeah. That was like supposed to be really, really like a compelling one. And wow, did that get deflated real fast. And you know, uh, Murray Del Potro was really exciting for a set and a half. And then it kind of was like, uh, pretty much know how this is going to turn out. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. It it just was, there were a lot of like really interesting matchups, but they just didn't, they didn't yield much. I mean, Rafa Stan, I think everybody circled that as being the only way Rafa was not going to win was if he played Stan in the final. Um, yeah. He was and, the lone and, guy on his path who I thought really had a shot to actually yeah, that's what everybody match thought, his level. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but Rafa and, was just one of being untouchable. Yeah, and he was, and and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But it did make the um, the men's tournament feel a bit uh, empty. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but that's the word that's coming yeah. to mind. Like like there was so much space around Rafa that there just wasn't enough competitive intrigue. Yeah, yeah. no, that that's completely right. Um, and you mentioned to get to the other members of the big four who were participating. Uh, you mentioned Andy Murray. I agree. This was a, a really, I think, expectation-surpassing tournament for him. Um, he had some lot played two four-setters in his opening rounds against uh, Andre Kuznetsov and Martin Klizan, um, and then beat Del Potro in straights, beat Kachinov in straights, which is a pretty good win, and then beat Nisha Corey in another kind of a very up-and-down match. It's just weird. Um, and then made semis and lost in, in five to Stan and was in a, a tiebreak in the fourth set. So, I mean, I think Murray has to be incredibly happy with how he got himself out of his tailspin right before grass. Uh, it was a very, something that on the women's side, obviously, <laughs> Angelique Kerber chose the opposite route as a top seed in a tailspin and got out of there quickly. But Murray did do good things. Djokovic, I think his tournament was overall a negative, even making quarters with how it ended. Like, there, how can you possibly take anything positive from this week for him? He makes quarters, he plays Dominic team, and he loses the first set and then afterwards said, yeah, after I lost the first set, I knew it was over. In a best of five match playing against like a lower ranked guy. And yeah, you're that's Novak Weird. That's what a was weird that? That thing was, to hear, yeah. That was very bizarre. That but was like the most you... telling quote of the whole Yeah, exactly. Me. It gives you some insight into his head and... I think I was saying when we were on, you know, uh, David's podcast that it's, I just would really like to see him take three months off of competition 
and just get his everything in order, get his, you know, his team in order, get a daily coach in order and get to work. Because one of the things that was really telling in, um, you know, a few of his matches, but I remember specifically this when he played team, because I think I was on radio for it, is um is he's wiped like he's exhausted after points. I mean, how many times when, you know, all those thousands of words that have been spilled over Novak Djokovic during his dom dominating years where or even years where he wasn't dominating, but he was clearly number two or number three, that he was tennis's Iron Man. Right. Like he played, he just was like unbreakable. He was winning, you know, 56 shot rallies against Rafa in finals and, yeah. you know, never missing and going corner to corner, playing ridiculous defense. All of those like crazy sliding splits right on the baseline, just hanging in there. Yeah. Insane. Right. And then he would finish and he didn't even look exhausted. But like in Paris, he was constantly just gasping for air. And so as much as people kind of want to talk about, oh, Novak, there's all these mental, like, you know, is he engaged? You know, can he find his focus? Can he find his intensity? I honestly just don't think that he's been working at the level that he was working under his old team with with Vida and all and, and that whole team and everyone. And his whole physical training staff he had. That yeah, too. yeah. Because he just isn't showing that he can last in those rallies at all or that he has any confidence in his physicality whatsoever. And I feel like even if, you know, players are, are, you know, their rhythm's off or their confidence is lacking, like, they still have, like, tons of faith in their physicality. Like, you mentioned a Kerber, like, she still has hella faith in her, like, ability to outrun you. Right. But the shots aren't landing, you know, but she doesn't, she never looks like she's wiped. Like, I don't think that Angie is any less fit this year than she was last year. Whereas with Novak, there, there were definitely signs where you're like, man... I'm, I don't know. And, 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 and all of that makes sense, you know, because if he's struggling with his motivations and, and motivation after winning the French last year and distractions and all these sorts of things, maybe part of, you know, cleaning house and and bringing on Agassi. I mean, that's a whole separate discussion, but at least, you know, cleaning house and working with his brother and and Pepe Imaz is maybe a subconscious thing of, you know, he's not ready to re-engage yet. Yeah, lowering expectations not, a little bit. Yeah, and also he doesn't want a hard-charging coach there yelling at him to telling him to shape up or ship out, you know? Like, because he's, he's not there yet. He's, it's like almost yeah. like curious. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I don't, I don't want to care right now, and you can't make me. And until was... Novak turns that corner, then... All the super coaches and all the hires are, you know, it's just all kind of a bit of a, a dog and pony show. Right. No, and and Andre Agassi as a hire, I think, was just sort of like the wrong piece at the wrong time, like in terms of getting results of this French Open, because he does need his nuts and bolts. I, he needs a Vida. He doesn't need a he Becker. Needs he needs a Vida. Vida. He, he, need, needs, he, needs someone, he needs a Jamie Delgado. Exactly. Someone who's there to do this sort of daily, thankless, maintenance, grunt work that comes in with, you know, keeping a top athlete in fighting shape day in, day out. And Agassi is the kind of guy to push you over the finish line if you do get into, like, a final or a semifinal against Rafa or some great player. Not to necessarily, you know, get you through it there. And it's weird. It came pretty suddenly, this end for Djokovic. I thought Djokovic would beat team because, first of all, he'd beaten him, like, one in love or something in Rome. And he played really well in Rome. He beat Del Potro in Rome. He beat team. He maybe beat somebody else. He made the final. He had a good week. I didn't see this kind of letdown coming. And I agree with you. I think that time off would be 
great. I think that if he decided to say, hey, I'm going to skip all of grass and I'll see you in Cincinnati, you know, awesome. I think, and maybe take, you know, two weeks without the racket. I don't want to say meditate because maybe that's getting into trouble already, but just, you know, take time and figure out what you want to do or if you want to do it. And because right now it doesn't, it just doesn't seem like it's worth anything. It seems like he's not getting positive output from his tennis right now. You know, if it seems like the level he's able to produce right now, might as well not play or someone who's as good as he is. Yeah, I mean, because it it would be different if he was playing that way and he was playing, you know, obviously at a level that is subpar and substandard for him. But he looked like he was willing to, you know, like it's different like when Andy Murray is playing crap. Like, you know, it's not that he doesn't want to not play crap, you know, like he, he wants to get better and he's fighting it and he's getting frustrated and he's like trying to work through things. And I guess from Djokovic, I saw it a little bit more in Rome, but I definitely didn't see it as much in Paris. It is that that fight wasn't there. The fire. Yeah. And if you just, yeah, you drop a set to Dominic team and you just throw in your hat like that's something's a little bit it's deeper than just like oh you know um i don't know that's a, that's a surprising reaction it was the first time he'd lost uh, only, only the second time in his career they'd ever lost a final set six love in a match and uh the previous time was a match i remember actually it was a match in basel in 2011 like and his like really epic 2011 he was just out of gas against Nishikori oh yeah that's in right in basel and just like a very but that was like only like a second or third loss of that year and he just had you know he played such a heavy schedule that like caught up to him but this one seemed like him mentally checking out and it was pretty pretty alarming so we'll see well, what and... he what he makes of the rest of this year I, I i think he's definitely in need of some sort of he's in a he's in not in a place that's sustainable right now there has to be some give give or take one way or another i think with him right now yeah, I mean, the interesting thing with Novak at the moment is that, at least for me personally, his his struggles have really highlighted how integral and how important he's been to the ATP narrative and the ATP kind of tension up at the top. And I know that, obviously, tennis is rejoicing, you know, with the 2017 reversion to a season that is dominated <laughs> by... Roger and Rafa, I get that. I understand, and I, like I don't reversion as a, as a word choice. <laughs> I'm just saying, they were dark times for some of us. Um, but um, but no, but like obviously, and you can't take anything away from obviously Roger and Rafa because the way that they've done it has been spectacular. Just the the tennis that Roger delivered in the first three months and the tennis that Rafa delivered the last you know three months has been ridiculous. But. <laughs> It has kind of, you know, the men's tour at the moment kind of has lost a bit of kind of bite, a bit of edge, Um, especially in this instance where like Roger was effectively like, nah, no thanks, Clay. All you, Rafa. Like, you know, and it's like this weird like seeding of, of, of territory and terrain. And obviously that'll change once we get back to the hard courts in particular. But I don't know. It, it, Novak was just such a, a an amazing interloper and i don't mean that as an insult to him because i know that his fans are going to get mad when i say that but like he was he was such a disruptor and i loved that and in the same way with andy when andy was playing well and so tag teaming those two to be constantly like in the mix of disrupting these two and having them both effectively 
be the odd man out once again. Again, I feel like I've seen this show before. <laughs> no, I, I think I think that's right, and it just does sort of seem, yeah. We'll see, and we'll see what Federer does on grass. I mean, we only we're just recording this, you know, before the final weekend of the first grass tournaments, and he lost his first match to uh, in, in Stuttgart to Indian Wells tournament director Tommy Haas, and that's weird. Um, and so we'll see if he comes out flat or not. But I think I think you're right. I think it would be nice to see. Maybe at U.S. Open, if all four big four guys can come there at the peak of their powers. Because we haven't had that in a while. We're all four really actually playing well at the same time. Well, you don't even need four, but you need three. That's fair. You need three and a cast of maybe three players behind them. So like the Vavrinkas, Del Potros, Nisha, you know, one of Nisha Corey, Raonic, Dimitrov, somebody in that group. And then maybe, a you know, a Zverev or team or something behind them. But like... Yeah, I mean, and maybe it's because it was surface specific and Rafa is just so far ahead of the the pack when it comes to playing on that surface, especially when he's playing well. But without without the challengers, I I I don't know. It it, it just lost a little bit for me. Yeah. And I don't just... want that. I mean, because when again, when it was like 3 three people b- battling for it or four people battling for it. Um, it it just, it was more interesting. Speaking, just one last thing, just sort of scrolling through this minute, Charlotte, see if there's anything that pops out at me. Uh, one thing we haven't mentioned, nothing, there's no reason for us to have because he lost in the third round with how this happened, but Davi Goffin's ankle Ugh, was sad. It and was the way he sad. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that he, if he, um, for those of you who didn't, I'm sure everyone has seen this at this point. Uh, David Goffin was sort of playing defense and running way behind the baseline and caught his foot. And I'm still not clear if he actually, what really snagged his foot was the tarp or the, there's apparently like a cement block underneath there. That's for drainage. I'm not sure if that would have been what stopped his momentum more than the tarp itself or what. But anyway, he, he did his ankle in pretty badly. Initial reports he thought was being, pretty optimistic about it but now he's already out of Wimbledon um I guess what is what do you think is sort of the I don't know tournament responsibility for those sort of things it, I mean that we haven't seen this happen before so I think it qualifies as a freak accident but it's something that you could point to the tarp and be like how is that tarp there I don't know it just I, I'm not sure I wasn't sure quite how to uh how to process the consequences of it when a lot of people were trying to be very um you know pointing a lot of fingers at the FFT for it yeah, that's funny because I get every single time I kind of I'm just like, oh, poor David Goffin. I get tons of like responses on Twitter being, well, it's his own fault for like yeah. going for that ball. And I was like, OK, that seems like a very weird response. But I get a lot of that. And so, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's every country has their own liability rules and things <laughs> like that. I do think that like, you know, if that was in the States, just because I'm more familiar with American, you know, rules and regulations and propensities for litigation that if you put something out there that effectively is a hazardous condition that's not good you don't think but it falls under like just assumption of risk do you assume the risk yeah i mean i guess you can argue that i mean i i don't know i mean yeah you could argue if, if, if it's assumption of risk you could also argue okay but that doesn't need to be there Okay, I assume the risk that a that if I run crashing into the umpire's chair, that I might break something. 
Yeah, and we've seen that. Right? Loja did that at some point at Wimbledon, yeah. Yeah, sure. The net cord or assumption of the risk with respect to the lines and, and slipping or getting your even your foot caught in the clay um, and spraining it and uh, turning over and things like that. Those are things where I understand a little bit more because that is just the necessary way that, you know, clay courts have and tennis courts have abnormalities and, and you know, you can hurt yourself. But I still just am always a bit surprised that, the the there isn't a cleaner way i also just don't think aesthetically it's ever looked all that great having no, the tarps at the back of the court like i'm like really can't we just like hide those behind something? that's why that's why i wonder like what the other what the point of it it's so out of place in the whole like fft aesthetic and all their their stuff to have this sort of you know crumply tarp lying back there that i almost wonder what cause it must have been thought about it's not haphazard it's on every court so yeah i don't know it's confusing and I wonder. I do wonder if any. I doubt any sort of lawsuit would come of it. But I wonder if they'll be there next year. It's a fair question. Yeah, I mean, but then as you pointed out, it, this is the first time we've seen something like this happen. So it's right. not like it's not like it's like a repeated. You know, it's opposed to like there have been instances in the past where it's on a grass court or on a clay court where there's clearly something, defect, de, you know, defective or deficient on the court oh, that causes one day like when everyone was getting hurt. Right. Yeah. Right. Or or like whatever. So. You know, in those instances, you kind of raise a little, you raise your eyebrow a little bit more. But as you pointed out, it's the first time that I've seen somebody hurt themselves on the tarp like this. Um, so, yeah, maybe those people who are telling me that it's David Goffin's fault are right. I don't know, but I, I definitely, definitely feel for him. Um, oh yeah. To to have that happen, it's just freaking brutal. Indeed, it is. Let's go to the women's side of the draw. It's been a week now as of recording this that Yelena Ostapenko has been a Grand Slam champion. It still doesn't sound right when I say it out loud. They're like, oh yeah, the French Open champion, that's Yelena Ostapenko. I'm not used to it yet. I think it'll take... I'm in, and I'm in Latvia and it still doesn't make sense to me. Being at her home place has not brought any more clarity to this. Um, she was... I, I think it really validated in some maybe some sort of ironic way what Simona Halep said in Rome about uh there being 20 favorites and i think courtney when you and i 15 to, 15 15 sorry <laughs> okay well maybe not don't then, because misquote <laughs> maybe 15 because when i was when we were going through our lists of 15 or 20 or whatever numbers they were Ostapenko is i think somewhere in that 14 to 20 range she occasionally got named she was certainly um of possible winners ahead of her ranking which was 47th um but Man, this is a, a result that I don't think anybody certainly would have confidently picked, even in the quarterfinals when she got there. I think it was sort of, she was the hardest one to see logic for as a champion, but she just kept swinging away and it kept going in enough. I mean, she missed plenty also, but she just controlled her own destiny in all three of her last round matches, ultimately, and walks away with her first tour level singles trophy. It happens to be the French Open. Have you, have you sort of, have you, in the time that's passed, have you found any sort of, I don't know, clarity or reason behind it? Or is it still sort of a result that just is a huh inducing as much as anything? No, I don't think it's huh inducing. I mean, I think that that would be the case if you had, for example, um, you know, a player who has a game style that would require them to like really, I don't know, I mean, like, for example, for the ins uh, for 
WT Insider, we had a contenders and dark horses piece. And in the dark horses, we had a Latvian on the on the list, but it wasn't this Latvian. Yeah. And we had Sevastova, who had a great um, a great uh, 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 clay court season um, and is ranked higher and is, you know, gone further at, at, at slams than Ostapenko has and um, likes the clay and all these sorts of things. I think this is one of those instances where, again, when it comes to you know, uh, the clay court season, especially with respect to the French Open, it is the one slam which has the most inconsistency with respect to, or the most consistency, I should say, with respect to surprise winners, right? I mean, every other slam pretty much, you know, is is dominated by um, known quantities. Yeah. Uh, but the French has always had, you know, been a, a big breakout slam. Certainly like pre-Nadal ATP, absolutely. Yeah, sure. No, I, I'm thinking. Of, I'm thinking of the women. I'm not. Okay. I'm not applying to the men. Um, uh, yeah, no. I'm th- just for the women. It's been a an, an a, a tournament where you know, Lena won her first major here. Francesca Schiavone did what she did here. I mean, you know, going all the way back to an Ivanovic. Uh, you know, since Henin, really, it, it's been um, you know, surprising people not just you know winning the title but even making finals right yeah so it's not like an out of there out of nowhere thing it's just that at the end of the day we knew that Elena Ostapenko had this capability for one match two match three matches four matches we have never seen her be able to put it together for longer than that I mean three finals lost all of them Still young, has been very, very inconsistent despite having a game that everybody knows what she's capable of. Um, you know, is, is really, you know, never really cracked that high in the rankings, all of these sorts of things. But a player that we kept an eye on in the same way that you would keep an eye on like a Naomi Osaka or Madison Keys or some of the young players who have incredible amounts of power. But you're kind of like, eh, it's going to probably you're going to need like four or five years to like really harness yeah. everything. So for her to be able to put it together and and across seven matches it, against a field that was not fluky at all and not easy in 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 any way shape or form to get through that crazy day with the wind against Wozniacki falling behind love 5 quickly and you know blasting her way through that one getting past a crafty Tamea Bachinski um you know these are players that are supposed to bother Ostapenko and and they didn't and and then with Halep I mean yes Halep was you know, three games from the title being able to win straight sets, but that match was never fully in her control and everybody knew it watching it. And that's what Yelena Ostapenko does is that it, you are not in control. And um, when I spoke to her for the champs corner um, for WT Insider on the day after that she won on Sunday, I was like, you know, cause she was talking a lot about being a power player and, and liking that and feeling like no matter what, win or lose the matches on her racket and I was like, okay, well, when when's the last time that you remember being dictated to? Like, you walked off the court and you're like, well, nope, that match was not on my racket. And she kind of had that grin that Yelena <laughs> Osipenko has and was like, eh, a couple times. <laughs> Which I found to be fascinating and hilarious and very telling with respect to, to Osipenko's mindset. She's going to go out there and she's going to blast. And on in on these two weeks, in these conditions, which were generally hot, she was blasting and just complete and absolute fearlessness. I'm st- I'm not convinced she really still understands what she's done. Yeah. That the gravitas of 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 what occurred on that Saturday 
hasn't hit and I'm not sure it ever will hit. I, I just don't even know if she's hardwired to really be um, like wowed by it. It's almost like a teenager, even though she's 20 now, but almost a teenager like, oh, yo, that was cool. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, no, I can you know, agree. and that's it. Yeah, and I, and I think that, and that really served her really well. Ultimately, in the tournaments, that she Absolutely. never seemed to be aware of the stakes in this very powerful way, and not that. And this wasn't a case for Halep or Bachinski that either of them were really, you know, crippled by nerves and anxiety, even though they had every right to be. And I mean, that was obviously a little of a factor, maybe, but it was a background factor. Um, but Ostapenko just went out there and just sort of, you know. Whistling away, do to do to do, swing, 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 winner, 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 error, 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 and just kind of kept going. And it just seems like I think you're you're right. She was a player who we knew could tree or could do this for stretches of time and could pull off a big win. But there was just no sort of nothing in her file to indicate that she was ready to do this for seven matches in a row on a major stage. I mean, she had her best previous result was a third round at this year's Australian Open, where she played a, a great third round match. I think ten eight in the third against Carolina Pliskova. Um, but this was a whole different level. And, and granted, her draw played gave her some favors. I mean, she only, the only top 20 player she had to play was Halep, I think. Um, but And she played Stoser, who had a hand injury and who, who was, went away, sort of faded away with that injury as the match wore on the fourth round. But she's someone who I think really, it, it's just, it's tough to know what, to, what sort of significance to place on this now because it could be a complete lightning strike of a tournament with all the pieces aligning for her and it might never happen again or she might be able to sustain this somehow into a reliable power player career or it could be somewhere in between like a you know a del petra situation where they can have real high highs and real low lows and it just sort of cycles in and out i, I i'm curious to see what she can do on grass which should be a really good surface for her but i'm just mostly left feeling this chapter isn't finished yet or something it's almost like not that the title's written in pencil or anything because she won it, but I don't know what sort of what it means. And I don't think we can know until a lot more data comes in because there just wasn't that much data on her to start with. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's the significance of what happened outside of obviously the personal significance, but the the the, the sport, the significance to the sport um, and what the next chapters uh, with respect to Elena Ostapenko and the WTA um, you know, what those chapters read like will really, I don't know, just depend. I mean, that sounds like such a tautological idiot, idiotic thing to say, like, oh, they are, they will be, they will say what they say, because it'll be written as it gets written. And we don't know what that is yet. But typically, that hasn't been the case. I mean, typically, I think we've had the, we had this conversation maybe that night or or the next day about having about you know when's the last time that there's been a, a slam result that really left you a little bit speechless with respect to what comes next yeah I, I can't i can't think of one quite like it i mean it was the most surprising i think slam winner in terms of well panetta because she was retiring right away afterwards we knew that didn't something had long-term significance Bartoli had been like threatening before, made a final before, and was kind of like a, a much more established player who could, you know, run hot and get on a streak and also had a lot of draw help. Um, maybe, and this is, maybe it's most like, um, in terms of the final, the one it reminded me most of was um, 
Sharapova beating Serena, actually, because I just remember waking up to watch that Wimbledon final 2004 with no, never holding any sliver of possibility that that result was going to happen. You know, I was so convinced that Serena was going to, even though Sharapova had built up a lot as this, you know, oh, new blonde, young teenager, hot prospect. She was, you know, playing Serena. And Halep obviously isn't Serena or even circa 2004 Serena, but she was the person who just made logical sense. And it's this sort of disruptive, I don't know. I just, I, like I said before, I'm not, I just don't know how to, how to file this in terms yeah, of like I mean, I, in my software, I think typing in Ostapenko into the slam champ blank just sort of creates some sort of glitch or at least a long processing time that I'm not see, sure but, it's over uh, for me yet. Yeah, no, and that's the thing. I mean, what you said is is right in so far. I don't really see the Sharapova Serena comparison because, as you said, like Sharapova had already been hyped up. Yeah. So no, it's not a good comparison. And 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 so what you but what you said before that I think is absolutely right, which is just that Ostapenko came into the tournament and into the final even and even as she was holding the trophy with very few data points. There was there's little to say. You know, and, and, and you saw it as, as I did, you know, in the in the press conferences. I mean, people were trying oh, so hard to find something uh, to 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 get, you know, the data points. And at the end of the day, you write about her tennis, which is, you know, made a crowd at court. Philippe Chatrier just completely ooh and ah and gasp oh, with the way that over. she can hit the ball. Absolutely. So. In that way, you know, it, it's but it but 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 yeah, it, the significance of it, it 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 we're gonna have to wait and see. I mean, um, we're in, we are in the narrative business, and this is a tough narrative. And like you said, not that you know, and, and she's very new. At, I don't think I doubt she'd ever been in the main room of a, of a slam press room before for press conferences before this tournament, which is saying something as a sort of stat, even though it's not an official stat. Um, but she was off radar, and there was no real explanation for why it was all coming together now you know or why things had happened and, and compared to other class of you know 97 which is this group this very promising generation in wta compared to benchich or osaka we spent a lot of time with both of them at this point they've been both been much more on our radars and i think one of them and obviously benchich has been her for a while but someone like that breaking out or anna kanya you know we know things about these people and it was a lot of having to learn basics about Ostapenko in a lot of ways and she just hadn't hadn't been on this sort of threshold of, of relevance so it'll, it'll be interesting to see what what she does with this new spotlight I mean she's ranked what like top five in the race now right yep. number 12 in the rankings so she's going to be a, and he's a slam champ so she's going to be a relevant player results thick or thin for at least the rest of the year probably the next 12 months so it'll be interesting to see what she does with that for sure. I mean, I, it's it's just a matter of seeing how her tennis holds up, how her body holds up. I mean, if you show very few signs of nerves competing in your first major slam final, one that you won, I it it, it I'm genuinely curious as to what it takes to show nerves. <laughs> you yeah. know, like you know, I I don't know. I I just don't see her as somebody who's going to feel pressure. I mean, she comes from Latvia, where I don't think that they're going to put that much pressure on her. You know, no. she's not sparking a, a tennis revolution in, in Latvia, for example. I mean, she wasn't swinging her racket, for example, with the, 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 the weight that every swing from Simona Halep had with all of Romania, like watching with bated breath as to whether or not she could make history. And 
you know, and so she she gets to be that free again. She's 20. She's not a teenager, but a, that free swinging teen that we always knew that she was, except that now she has she's full of confidence because why wouldn't you have confidence? And that's what I think is a pretty exciting thing is to kind of see like, all right, let's see. Let's see what you do with this now. Right. And and um, which I think is a that's where the excitement comes in for me of, of just kind of like watching and being like, I, I don't know, but I'm I'm definitely curious to see where this where this journey takes you. No, for sure. Um, and it could be a springboard. I mean, this could be if she can keep up that level and that level of mental unburdenedness. I mean, she can certainly if she can, you know, and obviously what she the way she plays is such a roulette style of tennis, but she can do this again she can win big matches big titles for sure and she has enough game that if she you know gets it a little more consistent and a little more reliable day in day out she can i think be a yeah like a kvitova type player results wise and that's totally attainable yeah kvitova is the one that 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 kind of comes to mind um the most when people think about trying to compare them like a right-handed kvitova um and the thing is is that what is exciting about Ostapenko is that she is just 20 years old. I mean, her she will get fitter. She will get faster. She will get stronger. She has years to fix that serve, um, which remains a massive liability. She's yeah. only now, on, you know, working under, you know, uh, uh, Medina Garrigas on, in, on the clay season and maybe just recently kind of bringing in new voices into her coaching team. Um, she had been working with a, a former Latvian ATP player, you know, in Charleston as her hit, new hitting partner. And, and that seemed to work out well. But as she learns how to tennis, she's only going to get better, arguably. Now, I One could thinks. be wrong. One thinks. I mean, ar- I could be wrong. Maybe when you stop swinging freely and make and going for those audacious shots and you do start playing more percentage tennis, you become crappier. I, it's possible. I mean, you ask Christina Mladenovic, she'll say that. And she refuses to play percentage tennis and, and doesn't want a coach to tell her to. So she go, she's by herself and she's having the greatest season of her career. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the next the next couple of years for Ostapenko is going to be very interesting to see kind of like how her game evolves and whether or not she just sticks to this and continues to be like, you know, from the Flintstones, like Bam Bam <laughs> um, or 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 kind of evolves into something different. That That's a big that's a big question. Yeah. And, well, and it can run hot and cold. I mean, we've seen this not totally. I mean, not very not a perfect comparison here at all, but like a Jeannie Bouchard, who is a player who swung from the hip and went for a lot aggressively and as you know was in a very good form that worked out for her really well for the first seven months of 2014 and not so hot since then yeah but you know so much of the difference between those two is going to come down to just their technical ability and right there's nothing technically all that wrong with the way that that uh ostapenko plays her tennis it's just the decision making that leaves you like what and the second serve um, yeah. but, uh, but, but, you know, and, and aside from those two things, like, I mean, the forehand is pure, the backhand is, and, you know, she considers her forehand the weaker shot Her backhands, apparently the purer of the two. So yeah, I can see it. I can see it holding up better in more of a covid of a like way. I don't know if I'll, I'd be curious to see if she ever reaches. I mean, I, I heard another comparison, Martina Navratilova compared her, um, her ground strokes to Davenport. 
Um, mm. And I'd be curious to see if she can like one thing that Lindsay always had going for her was that she was remarkably consistent for for a pretty big hitter, you know, like on the yeah, tour but, level and stuff. Yeah, and so that's not that what, that's I don't why know. I would not compare her to off the bank. Yeah, that's exactly. Weird, that's a weird I'm like, choice. Well, I don't know. Maybe something. Maybe, maybe something. Yeah. In there, maybe she's being more granular about some sort of technique or something. But yeah, in terms of how they actually put together matches. I don't know. Well, I mean, look at look at Pliskova. I mean, I don't think like I don't know if like two years ago, if you asked me if Pliskova would be knocking on the door of number one, I would have said, yeah, Pliskova can win slams. But number one, are you kidding me? She doesn't have that consistency. And look at what she's been able to do. Yeah, she was one match away from it. Uh, the French Open. One set. So yeah. let's get to yeah one set. So let's get to the rest of the, the field, starting with the runner up, Simona Halep, um, who I, I, from from a, you know, there, there, kiddo kind of perspective. I keep going back to her quarterfinal match against Vitalina, where she was just completely dead to rights, down 6-3-5-1 in that match, and had been down, I think, 5-11 in the first, something like that, 5-1, five, five, something lopsided in the first, and somehow pulled that match back together um, to win at 6-0 in the third, winning a tiebreak in the second, saving a match point. And then beat Pliskova in a tough three-setter in the semis, and and loses to Ostapenko. And yeah, she was up a set in three-zero, and yeah, she was the tournament favorite, losing to a number forty-seven. But for me, I I want Halep to leave this tournament with her head held high. You know, I feel like she put herself in as much of a good position as she could, and ultimately the kid treed. I don't know if you're if you're reading on that varies or what you think the, the outcome should be for Simona Halep, who obviously was fairly. Uh, fairly crushed by the final yeah it, it, it all depends on how Halep um processes things for the next few weeks and I wouldn't be surprised if she doesn't kind of fully re-engage until the hard court season and even late in the hard court season I don't know if it, it might take a little while for this one because I don't think that Halep can walk away feeling like she did anything wrong and I think that that's actually sometimes the harder thing for an athlete to process. Yeah. Because at least if you choked, at least if you got nervous, at least if you played crap tennis, whatever it was, then you can point to something very concrete the minute that you walk off the court. And you can say, okay, like that's why that happened. Let's work on that. Let's get back going. I can see a situation for Halep where there's got to be, you know, one you know, angel on her shoulder saying, you know, chin up and, and, and you did, you know, what she said on the court, you know, maybe I wasn't ready f to win it this time. And maybe she's still a work in progress and she's made um, tremendous tr strides ever since even just, you know, April. So maybe what she said on court, you know, that it, it, this wasn't my time, that I'm still a work in progress. Um, and she believes that, that, you know, she's made tremendous strides even since, you know, the, the Miami meltdown as it were, and and if you even take a step back and you look at Halep's game from 2000 and, and you know 16 until now, you know she's done a lot of hard work in terms of breaking down some of her her strokes and rebuilding them to be better, um, and that takes a lot of guts. And so she, you know, she can walk away and say, you know, it's still a work in progress, and that's okay. And you know, before um, the uh, the final in her semifinal press conference, she said, look, like you know, I. I know that I'm young and I know that like on Saturday, it's a brand, it's another opportunity, but it's not going to be my last opportunity. And that, I hope I like that, that. She, I love that. And I hope she does believe it. I really do. And and you don't, you never know with, with players. They say a lot of great things and you don't know which <laughs> ones, 
you know, they're parroting and, and which ones they actually believe to be true. So I hope that she believes that because I do. I, I, I don't think that's the last Grand Slam final we've seen from either of those women. I, I, and, I hope that that part's right. But I, and I hope that she doesn't read too much into the possible negative spin at the other part. Like, I just wasn't ready yet. I think she was ready. I mean, she was up a set in three love in a Grand Slam final and had won, you know, Madrid and made the final of Rome. I think she was ready to win this tournament and just, I think, you know, sort of a, you know, Ostapenko happens kind of thing. Right. Almost yeah, no, for take. sure. Yeah. And that, but that's, but that's where I, I'm just kind of, my, personally, I'm just curious as to where she lands on it because it, it, she's in a situation where, you know, she can sit there and say, I did everything right. Everything. And I still lost, you know, and I didn't lose to Sermina. I didn't lose to Sharapova. I didn't lose to Azarenka or Kvitova or whatever. Like I played a Grand Slam final at my favorite slam that I won as a junior that I made a, a slam final at before I came in, you know, the tournament favorite. I played six great matches. I played an unseated kid. who was 20 years old. Never been in this situation before. I led 6-3, 3-love. I had points for 4-love. I had points for 4-2. I could have been number the first Romanian number one. Yeah. You know, like, and when you start thinking of it that way, that's when it spirals negatively. And yeah, so I, I don't know where she is, but I know that she's, she's, pretty, she's pretty down in the dumps. But yeah. I don't know where she comes out, how or when uh, she'll come out of it. I don't think it'll be grass. I'd be no, surprised. I mean, so, it would be a tremendous thing if it was. I mean, this is a tournament again. 2014, she lost the, the 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 French Open final, and she went on to make the semifinals. You know, a couple weeks later, so and could have won it if she hadn't rolled her ankle, right? Against I, I Bouchard. still believe it. I still yeah. believe it. Call me crazy. I know how Petra played that day, but it's one of those. You know, if Vinci doesn't, or sorry, if Halep doesn't lose to to Panetta, does Serena then? Knowing that she's, you know, it's the domino effect, yeah, the butterfly, the, bu- the butter- butterfly of tennis for sure, right? Um, so, so that's so that's Halep. I, 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 I mean, you said she did everything perfect. I mean, she the one thing in the match that I think it exposed a little bit for her, Ospenko, is that she doesn't have very much variety in her game in terms of slice and things like that. She wasn't able because the way that she and Bachinsky played Ospenko was very, very different. Bachinsky got all of her points off of Ostapenko through, you know, putting her in awkward positions on court through slices and drop shots and things like that. And if Halep had maybe a little bit more of a, you know, a B or C game with those kind of things, it might have helped her sometimes slow Ostapenko's role a little bit. But but overall, yeah, I think she was close and should be uh, happy. We'll see. We'll see what she she makes of this. Uh, in terms of other semifinalists, Bachinsky making her second French Open semifinal in three years. It's pretty incredible. Um, again, someone who was on the longer shortlist to win the title because of her French Open pedigree. Um, but Pliskova, I think, was the most, one of the most impressive and was, like you said, one set away from number one and would have been ready for it. I mean, she played her, what she was able to do, feeling not great about her game on a surface she hates even if it was playing pretty fast this year in Paris, I was incredibly impressed by. And I think it bodes incredibly well for what she can do in the rest of the year, which will only be on the surfaces she likes in grass and hard court. Yeah, no. Uh, 
Everybody knows how I feel about Carolina Pliskova. <laughs> she's awesome. She's great. She's hilarious. She's she's so hilarious. She was at her most hilarious during the French Open. You were. Was... I feel like this is the moment that like Plisko like gelled for you. No, no, I've been pro Plisko for a while, but I, thought I know you've she... been pro. But like this was the first time I've seen you like effusively like being like, ah, oh, she's great. I think she, I think her press was better than usual because she was way more self deprecating than usual. Like she really amped it up. Like she because <laughs> she, she had a pretty cakey draw through the first four rounds. Um, and so the thing she would, and what I also loved about it, which is not pure humor, but that she was honest about it. She was like, I forget who she was going to play. Let me look at her draw. As she was like was, going into her yeah. third round match against Whithoft. And she was like, yes, I play Whithoft next. Yes. Again, another player I should beat. And you just like, don't hear people talk that way about, you know, you hear like Rafa is the exact opposite of this. Be like, oh, well, every match is very tough for me. No, it's, you know, every player is so good. I'm not going to take anything for granted. And it's like, dude, you're playing like, I don't know, uh, Tomic on clay. You'll be fine. Dude, you're playing Nicholas Basilashvili. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> right. And so Pliskova's reliable narratorness, I found very refreshing. And I just, as, as someone, we said this, we went really hard on her, or really, you know, hard selling her. If you remember on our Australian Open Draw Preview show, um, that's and right. All that stuff still stands. I still think she'll be number one this year. Um, she's not playing Birmingham, so she can't get there. Birmingham got a lot of withdrawals. I was just seeing the list today, um, but I think she's just very ready to do it. And whether or not she gets a slam before she does it, I don't care. I think she's the best player in the WTA right now. Period. Ooh. Yeah. I don't think that's a hot take. I think no, no, like no. I very... don't think it's a hot take either. I just yeah. was like impressed that you went there. That's all. <laughs> well, I, well, we had a situation, I mean, and also with Kerber, um, Kerber obviously not doing much lately. Halep, if she hadn't pulled out of Birmingham, would have had a chance to win, get to number one in Birmingham, I think. Yep, yep. Um, and that would have been okay too like i i think this the soul the number one thing it's gonna it's an odd period number one like obviously none of those three women kerber pliskova or halep have the and kerber does but just not recently because she's been in such a, a valley in terms of her form lately um our traditional number one but i think they're all you know good solid players but pliskova is the one i think really with the the upside so i'm looking forward to seeing her continue to consolidate that at, at uh, on the grass, which should be again a good surface for her. Yeah, I think that of those three, I mean, I think that the number one ranking is going to go kind of back and forth a little bit and get ping ponged, particularly between Halep and Pliskova, simply because there's quite the bit of bunching up at the top there, and and, and Kerber has a lot to defend. Um, although Halep does too. Um, once the hard court season, well, and so does Pliskova. Well, and th- therefore it's going <laughs> to ping, it's going to ping around a lot between those three through the end of the season. Um, and, but of the three, I think that, yeah, Pliskova is the one that's built for it. Um, in terms of, I don't, I don't really see her freaking out if she has the number one next to her name. It's just something she doesn't talk about. It's not something that is particularly, she just wants to win tennis matches. There's this incredible jockishness about Karolina Pliskova that I adore that at the end of the day, she just, yeah, that that's what it's all about for her. And everything else is a bit of, uh. Um, of window dressing. So the other, the other thing that I think really feeds into her confidence, and I think both of us picked up on this separately, but she corroborated it in her own way a couple times, is she is the only one I feel like of those three 
who doesn't feel like there's an asterisk about her possibly getting number one because of Serena. Because she beat Serena the last time they played at the U.S. Open and she beat her in straight sets. Well, and I mean, Kerber beat her. I know Kerber has beaten her, but I think Kerber is still just personality-wise a little more deferential than Pliskova. Um, or, you know, in those sort of ways. And I think that Kerber, um, sorry, that you know, Kerber lost the most recent reading, meeting at Serena in Wimbledon. Yeah, I'm still saying, I mean, I don't think that that's a particularly, I don't think, I don't think that Kerber was asterisked when she was number one. I don't think, I think, I don't think so when she got it. No, but I think that right now she's not a, you know, resounding number one. That's what I'm saying. Because she got it because Serena went on maternity leave and didn't play after she got it back in January. Yeah, I'm not, okay. I'm not saying, I'm not saying I disagree. I just don't really understand your argument about it. I'm just, I'm just saying that I'm just, I'm just, I was maybe a clunky, you know, route to talk about Pliskova's swagger. Like, I think no, Pliskova... Pliskova has swagger, and I have absolutely 100% agree with it. And I think that, like, yeah, like, when people would ask her, like, oh, is the field that much more open now that Serena's out of it? I mean, Pliskova was always keen to point out, like, uh, I beat her, like, you know, yeah. at, at the slam that I made a final. So, like, no, it's not any more open for me. It might be open for other people, but for me, like, it's the yeah. same as always. Yeah. Um, that's what I'm, but that's exactly what I was getting at. Yeah. Right. But I, I don't think that that has anything to do with Kerber, and I don't think that has anything to do with an asterisk about any of that that's just kind of she has swagger and she believes in herself and um i think that she would believe in herself and i don't think there would be an asterisk even if she lost to serena like in their last meeting i think that pliskova just there's just a a a she's just really comfortable within her own skin and she just doesn't really care like even when you bring up like criticisms of this or that like she owns up to some of it in terms of like yeah i'm slow I don't <laughs> like, you know, I don't like running. I don't like doing this. I don't like doing that. Like sometimes I don't I like practicing. Yeah. I hate clay. Like she like she totally is upfront with all of the things that she like believes that she sucks at. So she doesn't like cover anything up. But at the same time, she doesn't talk herself down either. Yeah. So when she believes that she's supposed to win and when she believes that she's screwed up, like she tells you that. And and that's why I think that she's such a refreshing like, you know, kind of person because I feel like there's no bullshit with Carolina Pliskova. Like, yeah. when I talk to her, I'm like, all right, cool. Even with her being like, I would bet everything that I have on Simona winning. And then, like, <laughs> and then like, but, like, actually tactically breaking it down and saying, to your point, Ben, yeah. Simona, she is not Tamea. And basically pointing out the fact that, like, she doesn't play that type of game, that she is slightly more aggressive, that she's more dangerous. And obviously Pliskova's, Faster, Pliskova's yeah. you know, talking after, you know, losing to, in three sets to Simona Halep. So, but... um. But yeah, but like you know, no play. You know, you ask any other player to preview a final after they've lost, and every single one of them's like, I don't care. Yeah, you know what I mean. And but she's like, yeah, okay, you want me to? Sure. Right. It's it's the lack of fucks like to she give, go- the refreshingness. Yeah, she just, just like goes yeah. and like and she goes all in on it. Like it's not even like well on one hand, but on the other hand, it's like mm, I'd bet everything on Smyrna. It's like oh Jesus. <laughs> And wrong, but I appreciate and, the enthusiasm. Yeah, and she's like, oh, well, so I was wrong. You know, and when people told Simona that, and Simona's like, oh, she's always been really nice. <laughs> I was like, oh, you too. Um, in terms of other notable players, the French Open, I, I slight correction for what I said earlier. Ospenko actually beat two top 20 players en route to the final because she also beat Wozniacki, or en route to the title, rather, because she beat Wozniacki and Halep. Wozniacki, I think, and arguably the most surprising quarterfinalist. I never expected her to get past Kuznetsova on clay, and she did. Um, but the tournament, 
and that bodes very well for her. And she's one of those players like Pliskova who is doing really well this year in the rankings, but not on clay. And it still sort of managed to translate for them at this tournament somehow. Um, but at the tournament, the first four rounds of the tournament, however long she lasted, or into the quarters, really, I thought, belonged men and women to Kristina Milanovic, who just had this sort of, I don't know, she has this star power or attention uh, soaking in superpower or something. I don't know what exactly how to describe it, but Courtney, I think you would probably experience this similarly. Just like the tournament seemed to revolve around her. As the number one French woman, there were posters of her everywhere, and she was a legitimate contender to win the title, and she played these incredibly dramatic matches, uh, whether it was against Jennifer Brady first round or Shelby Rogers or Muguruza. I, I thought she was the most compelling, in a lot of ways, player at the tournament. Yeah, I mean, I think you could make a pretty good argument that she's been the most compelling player all season. Mm. Um, just because, like, even for us, like, if we sit down and at, on for, at the WTA and try to put together, oh, let's put together a list of the best matches of the first half of the year, like, 80% of them involve Kristina Mladenovic on one, on one on either the winning end or a losing end. Yeah. And she's just always been right there in the mix of things. Um, and... You and know, she'll the mix it up. <laughs> and she'll mix it up herself. And, and yeah. the first week uh, in Paris, you know, I was I said this on the Insider podcast, you know, going into the French Open, I had no questions about uh, Christina Moldenovich's tennis. Like, I think that through the first six months of the season, particularly what she did on the clay season, she's pretty much proven to me that, like, she's arrived, that she could, that that tennis is like here to stay. And, you know, everyone needs to start reckoning with it. This isn't a fluke. She isn't on a hot streak. Like this is how good she has managed to make herself now, you know, after a good off season and she's far fitter than I, I expected her to be this season. She's, you know, faster, more consistent um, through the rallies, things like that, while still playing her, you know, jaw dropping at times, audacious, a shot making style of tennis, which so is great French. for the game as well. It's so French and it's very, I mean, it's so Gallic, but yeah. it wins. And that's the weirdest thing. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so, but my biggest question going into Paris was like, how is she going to deal with all the other stuff though? You know, like the French are never quiet about, about uh, professing their heightened stress levels when they play at the French open. Yeah. And, um, and, and it's no, it's the worst for them of any of the four Grand Slam country players. Like the Americans, I mean, yeah. shoot. Like the, our fans will sh cheer for Gael Monfils instead of John Isner. Um, yeah. You know, in Britain, it's just, it's Britain. They're never going to get like rowdy. Like, you know, like. I got whatever. real rowdy for Heather Watson against Serena. But oh, for yeah. the most part, yeah. Do not try me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then. That was the loudest stadium I've ever been in. Like seriously, that was so Was it that so bad? Weird. It was, no, that Watson Serena match, it was huh. as loud as because it was like they saw it as like this champion in Serena who was never like beloved in Britain, honestly. Yeah. Um, like kind of being on the canvas with this um, with this scrappy British underdog. Plucky. You know, plucky, plucky. That was where A I was. A plucky before. Brit. This plucky Brit. And so it was like they were that just the ecstasy levels in the crowd were gross. <laughs> and <laughs> it was it was gross. It's, it's why they sell so many towels at that tournament. And I oh, and I just dear. I, I'm sorry. I just it was it was a lot that match. I still remember being in Center Court being like, What is happening here? This is so weird. <laughs> and you saw how rattles for Serena was like, What is going on here? And yeah. she felt she felt tried and uh and she she got through it but yeah and but the crowd to mention the front to bring it back to france that muguruza crowd a little bit similar 
um, in terms of just seeing a champion going down to a, a, a beloved local player, not beloved, but a, a local player. Um, I didn't think it was as bad as Muguruza and Samsung made it out to be, or as the sort of reaction was. I was in the crowd, I was in the stands for the second half of that match. I think I got there mid-second set. Um, it was loud and jeery, but I sort of agreed with what Milenovic said afterwards in press, which was like, and maybe part of this comes from me being like a Philadelphia Flyers fan, so <laughs> my bars for fan decorum are oh, incredibly, dear. incredibly warped. But um, No one got stabbed. What is everybody complaining about? No, right. About? Like, like what? Like, nobody, <laughs> yeah, like pretty much it. No one got beat up in the bathroom for cheering for Muguruza or whatever happens to Flyers games. Um, I, I thought that they were partisan and they made clear who they wanted to win, which maybe is sometimes galling to the traditional tennis public who wants it to be, you know, doesn't want to hear people cheer clap for a double fault even where i'm like if you have a strong preference on who wins the match and your player just got a point however they want it like you can i'm fine with you clapping if it's like deep in a third set you're happy you can show it if you're happy you know it clap your hands as the wise song says um yeah i i thought that i just thought that it was it was representative of how sort of electrifying milenovich managed to be in this incredibly melodramatic way because like that match against jennifer brady in the first round was ridiculous and like did not need to happen. She did not need to go, what was it, 9-7 in the third against Jennifer Brady? And then go similar scoreline against Shelby Rogers. Shelby Rogers is a more established clay court player than Jennifer Brady. But she just she really seemed to enjoy the theater of it and played her best with her back against the wall in this uh in this tournament. So I think that made I think that made her an incredibly compelling protagonist for the tournament. And hopefully it's a uh act that will be renewing at Roland Garros for many years to come. I know, and I know obviously a lot of people have very strong negative feelings about her for her being outspoken or whatever. And that's, and that's fine. And I'm sure she understands that and kind of shrugs it off because she is, seems very confident in her decision-making and who she sort of, what she's presenting to this world, which is, which is a lot. I mean, I, th- I think that at the end of the day, you know, to be able to handle that amount of pressure, whether it's completely external pressure or pressure that you have effectively created, um, you know, in different ways, I, I, I still remain shocked that she was able to, to play as well as she did. And, you know, she was on the verge of bowing out in the first round, on the verge yep. of bowing out in the third round. Um, was it third round, fourth round, third round? Sure, against... Third round in Shelby, yeah. Third round against Shelby, yeah. I mean, you know, and and to her credit, she never, you know, the the uh, um, stereotype obviously with a lot of the French players is that they're, you know, they're nervy or they get you know a little bit too nervous, they can't close, that you know things like that, and that really never seemed to be the case with her. I mean, she had the back injury, and so maybe that took a little bit of pressure off of her. I mean, she effectively said as much um, that after falling behind love three to to Shelby and seeing the doctor that you know or not to Shelby to Jennifer Brady and seeing the doctor that you know she kind of was like it's a miracle that I was able to continue playing and and obviously injuries can take a lot of pressure off of off of you um but even you know she had to endure you know quite a bit of questioning within the press room a lot of interviews a lot of quotes everywhere and you know and then on top of that just handle you know the biggest tournament of her season which is the French Open Oh, she handled it remarkably well. Yeah. I, I don't remember the last time I've seen a player, you know, kind of have to run the gauntlet that 
was created or she created whatever however a combination of those two things yeah. uh, but running that gauntlet as successfully as 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 Kiki did and you know I was definitely surprised that that she lost to Machinsky I, I really had her as the favorite to come out of that one and and really thought that you know once she she pulled off that win over Muguruza and her back seemed to be doing better that she had a real 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 shot at the title yeah um for Muguruza I think actually, I sort of almost compare her a little bit to Andy Murray results-wise. She didn't obviously make it as far. She lost fourth round to Milenovic. But I think it's, it, say, that being said, an almost entirely positive tournament for Garbini Muguruza, um, who had a really, as we discussed, a really, really tough draw, starting with Skivoni first round. And that Contavite was a very popular pick as dangerous floater in this tournament who was on a lot of people's you know long short lists of possible contenders to win the whole thing. Um, and, and is now in a final on grass this week also, so she's backing that up. Uh, Muguruza played, I thought, pretty well, and her and her press conference, the aforementioned distress she had over the crowd against uh, Lenovich on Longlawn, her press conference for me was like probably the most memorable moment off-court of the French Open. It was incredibly uh, dramatical in a very authentic way, and just sort of what you want to see from your winners and, and and Muguruza is someone who often seems to have a guard up impressed or seems, and this is obviously mean, that's just partially just being a professional in terms of being, you know, people can say calculated as a negative thing, but she's trying to present a carefully constructed image. And it was a, a rare moment of, of sort of raw authenticity from her that brought out the, uh, the 25 languages comment and her, and her having her doing that after, you know, leaving the room crying, coming back, I don't know. For me, it was a term that I hope that Muguruza can see as a sort of pressure valve release that she can come positively out of. I'm I'm now more interested in her as a quantity on tour than I was before this tournament, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, her moment, her press conference moment was good for her insofar as, at least from what I saw and where I was sitting, she... She flipped... She was able to, within that five minutes, flip the switch of feeling sorry for herself and being defiant. Mm -hmm. And I think that that act of defiance, which I won't like rubber stamp necessarily, <laughs> but like, but in that moment, I think that she kind of re took control over um, what, it, what, what was happening in that moment and, and of her emotions and, you know, and, and the things that came after that, I mean, I understand the logic behind it of like, I'm glad this is kind of over and maybe now I can play like pressure free. And again, I don't really love that as a mentality, but I understand it for Muguruza simply because it has been, you know, just like at the end of 2016, she said, I'm really looking forward to never thinking about this year again, which is like a crazy thing to say in the year that you won your major, your, your maiden major. And got being Serena two, Williams whatever, in the final yeah. and got to number two. and But that gives you some insight into what 2016, the post-French Open 2016 was like for her. Um, and so for her to then to kind of repeat the same kind of theme of like, you know, now, you know, look, I lost. I'm no longer the defending champion. My ranking's going to drop. All these sorts of things. Maybe this is good. Maybe now I can be like, you know, I can I can move on and people can move on. It, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> again that that's it's 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 a weird you know you you're supposed to want that mantle you know you're supposed to want it but again it, it gives you some some insight into it, it's been a, it's been a rough 12 months for her 
Um, and uh, and maybe now she can turn that page and, and become the hunter again because she has played like the hunted for 12 yeah, months. True. And now she's out of the top 10, right? I mean, her ranking slipped quite a bit. Yeah. So that will definitely make her the hunted on paper more and more and maybe light a bit of a fire under her. And she's just going to be more comfortable as a, yeah, as an outsider. Um, uh, one wrap up the quarter finalists. Um, I don't know if there's much to say about Caroline Garcia, except for I think people were very happy for her. Um, and, and she was the last, because she played the day after Moldenovich, she wound up being the last French woman standing in the tournament. Um, and French player. Last French player, right. Yeah, because all the men had bowed out earlier than that. Um, and she, you know, I think had a, she was the one who was sort of the, I guess the feel-good story of the quarterfinalists, I guess. I mean, not the you know, competition, really, but she it was nice. She was one who I don't think, I don't think her making the quarters necessarily has major implications for the top of the game for the rest of the year. I don't think she's going to finish your top 10 or anything like that. I'd be surprised. But I think it was a nice sort of um, nice moment for her to come through what has been a publicly, you know, pretty tough few months for her. Yeah, no argument there. I mean, it's it's I think that I think that on the whole, if now circling back, you know, after having discussed this for an hour, uh, I do think that the, the theme from the 2017 French Open is that it was a lot of individual moments without that overshadowed, I think, or at least will resonate more individually than the full two weeks as a, you know, what it means for tennis mm. sort of thing. So I think that, you know, Garcia, Kvitova, uh, you know, Sepede Roig, which she was able to do, Ostapenko, yeah. obviously. Um, yeah, these these little, these smaller moments that, you know, and obviously for the men as well um, in the first week with Stevie, as, as we mentioned, and, and a few other players. I mean, um, Caroline Garcia is definitely on that list. And, and no one would have penciled her in to make the second week uh, before the tournament and more so than what it means for French tennis and what it means for her season, like whatever, what it means is that Caroline Garcia like played good tennis for two mm -hmm. weeks and she man and she handled the pressure. And one of the things that I thought was really, really interesting from her, because obviously like her run was being quite overshadowed by Mladenovic's just because Mladenovic's was on bigger stages and bigger opponents and things like that. But one thing that I thought was interesting was that um, Garcia said that, like, in the past, she had been so riddled with nerves when she got to Roland Garros. And before she even stepped on the court, she couldn't swing. She couldn't play. She couldn't even be mad when she walked off the court after her losses um, at the French Open in years past because she just didn't play. Like, she, yeah. she's like, wow, you can't even be mad. Like, I was so, you know. And she said that this year she didn't have any of that and that she was able to finally just play for herself and play for, um, you know, her team and her family and, and put things behind her. And in a lot of ways, you wonder if kind of the the, the discord, um, you know, between her and some of the other French players and, and her with, with the French Federation as well, just because of, of Fed Cup and all that, that it does release a lot yeah. of that tension, that she doesn't have to play with the flag on her shoulder anymore um, that it's not about being a French player and, and being, oh, the first French team to win the doubles at the, you know, all these sorts yeah. of things. It can just be about Caroline Garcia. And and, and, and and I think that, yeah, and, and in a lot of ways, Mladenovic soaking up all that attention and limelight was probably positive for Garcia. I think so. Yeah, I think so, too. I think, I think that, Gar I Garcia think... is a quieter player. 
Yeah. And she, that kept, and Milenovic is a very loud player and it kept her away from the sort of noise and things that would be, you know, possibly destructive. And that, and that quarterfinal match, in, in contrast to the men's tournament where I said, you know, pretty much all the final rounds were flops. I liked pretty much every of the last seven matches, the women's tournament. Um, that Plitsko of a Garcia match was great. It was, it was. Like six, six and four, really that first long set. First set was nuts. It was like, like 17 minutes. 15 minute service minutes. game. Yeah. It was really, it was a really good match. So if you if you were ever feeling nostalgia for the French Open a match, you might not have watched because you're probably watching Svitolina Halep, which was nutty at the same time. <laughs> uh, Pliskova Garcia, and to get to Svitolina, in terms of what I was saying about how Halep shouldn't feel bad about things, um, I'm less convinced about Svitolina, <laughs> who who was up six three five one, and collapsed. I mean, I mean, she had just come back in the previous round. It's Petra Mardik, we haven't mentioned yet, who is a great story of, you know, comebacks. Another one of those great sort of isolated moment stories in this French Open. Um, but Svitolina, my gosh, like this, <laughs> she could have definitely won this tournament. And the way she went out like that, I don't know. that, And the way her press conference was was dark Ooh, in, yeah. in terms in terms <laughs> of like there was some raw much more than like Muguruza was defiant. Svitolina was like trying to talk herself off the ledge. And doing a very unconvincing job. <laughs> She's like, no, it's fine. Like, I won four titles this year. No one can take those away from me. Like, I'm still going to be top five. And all five. the reporters like, in the room were looking at each other being like, we're not taking anything from her. We're like, not, why? We're not. You know. Like, she, she was essentially saying, like, life is still worth living. It's fine. I was like, we were like, no, 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 it's fine. Like, you're, you get to play Wimbledon. It'll be fine. It'll be okay. But, like, yeah, so that was that was odd. And I'm, 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 more, I'm wondering, in terms of scar tissue from this tournament, if she could be someone who um, has trouble with that. For the rest of the year. I mean, she's had a very, like a lot of it, I mean, like a lot of WTA, she's had a very up and down year. It was a lot of high highs. I mean, she won big titles, but also slumped in the North American swing and didn't do great in Australia. And uh, this result, I, I don't, I'm, she'll be another one in the mix. So I just, I don't know what to, I wouldn't predict anything about her confidently, good or bad at this point. I just don't know. Oh, I think that, that was, she'll be. That was something. I think that she'll be fine in terms of her tennis. I think that her tennis is still programmed and built on a foundation that allows her to be, you know, pretty much in the mix all the time. And she's in the process of kind of of like learning how to get that together. And she's obviously improved uh, quite a bit this year in terms of, of her week in, week out stability, um, um, consistency. I think that coming out of the French, I think that she'll actually be OK, um, because in years past, she wouldn't have even been trying to talk herself off the ledge. Okay, She would have been an absolute mess. So in that way, she would have been like, you know, just, yeah, that cap would have been pulled real, real low. <laughs> and at least in, at least in this situation, and, and it's something that she's been very open about and kind of like the work that she's been putting in with her team, with um, Terry Asion and um, Andrew Bettles, of just um, working through things mentally and just learning that not everything is fatal and that learning that everything is a process. And if there's any player, honestly, I can say this, if there's any player in the top 10 currently who is genuinely like right now all in on the idea of like the process and this includes even a joe conta which i mean we know how joe conta how much conta loves a process <laughs> but um it but it's fidelina of, of of nothing like even when she was doing really really well through the hard courts um you know after she had won you know um uh, dubai 
she was already looking towards like, yeah, I, just, I have so much work that I need to do to my game. I need, I still need to get it better. Everything can improve. I don't want to become satisfied, yeah. you know, you know, all these sorts of things. And, um, and it's a matter of her of like balancing, like she works really hard. She, she's super ambitious. There's nothing you can really tag Svitolina for at all. Um, but she's a work in progress and, yeah. and, 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 and she has been for a long time, you know, and it's only now that she, she's kind of starting to, to um, uh, bear the fruit of all the, the hard work that she's put in the last four or five years when she's been you know, arguably one of the most consistent players on tour. So I think that she's there. I, I think she'll be all right. Um, if anything, it'll it'll get her to, to like, you know, work even harder, which may not be a good thing. I don't know. But once the hard courts come around, I don't have much uh, hope for her on, on the grass. But once the hard no. courts come around, she'll be she'll be fine. I think that's I think that's right, and I and I do I do hope that it's obviously just sort of minor blip, but it was just she had been so good in that match up until she wasn't. Yep. And that's what that sort of dramatic shift in it was where I was sort of like, uh, uh. but she still like I think you're right that her base level game is so incredibly solid that she shouldn't have, but she has had more highs and lows than you think she would results wise this year. Having said that, but she should have a lot to fall back on. Yeah, because I think because the thing is is that right now she's in the midst of transitioning from and and this is always especially I know for myself, I've always been a bit critical of her game like maybe three years ago, three, two years ago about how just it was beyond defensive. It's retrieval, Um, yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it was just not impressive. And it didn't make sense for a player who's tall, who's strong, who can play a bigger game than she does. She's a strong. Um, I don't know if it I don't think it translates on TV, but she's like a strong, you know, well built athlete yeah she's when you strong. see her in person she's got a she's strong like, she's core like, strong she, base yeah, yeah exactly i don't think it no, shows up sure. on tv but when you see her in person you're like oh she's that's an athlete yeah, um exactly but but yeah so i wasn't particularly you know if you were to ask me years ago well, i don't know if I, I don't know unless she's got to get more aggressive got to get more aggressive and you can ask fidelina because i've always asked the like, so are you working on getting more aggressive like constantly and she's just been like i am aggressive and i'm like no you're not um but she actually has become more aggressive and i think that those wins not necessarily the one over serena but the win that she tallied over um over uh, um kerber definitely unlocked something last year in asia the one in asia and then what she was able to do in brisbane to start the season hitting you know out counter punching uh 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 kerber and hitting through the ball and finding you know hitting winners that was when i first started to sit uh, literally the first week of the season i sat up and was like this is different this is a difference, Fidelina. And over the course of it, she's still, you know, trying to learn that balance, though, because she can still get incredibly passive. She almost, as you said, lost to um, um, Petra Martic. And, yeah. and got basically, very passive it, in that match. yeah, got very passive. And it wasn't until she just kind of almost gave up and got aggressive that she was able to work her way back into that 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 match. And against Talop, she was incredibly aggressive, playing perfect tennis. Um, and then just the nerves came. And so. That's why I say she's a work in progress. She's still trying to find that balance and still trying to like work through nerves and things like that. But I can't knock Svitolina at all for any of the work. I mean, she's been working so hard and she's getting so much better. I've I've been very, I've been very impressed. And that's from somebody who, like I said, I have to admit, I I wasn't particularly sold on her two years ago. Yeah. And I think that, I think that game wise, she's sort of like almost an exaggerated Wozniacki. Maybe like she can, you know, when, because Wozniacki is better when she's playing more assertively. And I think Svitolina, Svitolina's assertiveness is better than Wozniacki's, probably. Um, and her, but when she gets passive, it's worse than Wozniacki's passive. Yeah, so, that's probably true. Yeah, so I think kind of goes both ways for her. But interesting, 
uh, to see. Other players worth mentioning in this tournament? Um, oh, in terms of, I wrote an article which turned very stupid quickly. <laughs> the next, literally the next day or so, um, about how older women who'd already won Grand Slams could also take advantage of this sort of open, quote unquote, tournament in Venus, uh, Stoser and Kuznetsova, and they all lost the next day in fourth round. Um, but I think Stoser had an incredibly good tournament um, and really, I think, could have won this tournament had she not gotten hurt with her hand against Ostapenko. Um, Kuznetsova, disappointing match completely against Wozniacki. I just don't. I mean, she's had those before in her career, but again, I really thought she could do this. And, and Venus, again, playing well um, and could have all the pieces come together for grass once again. I think Venus is, will only be playing Wimbledon as per always, but is absolutely one to watch on the grass. Yeah, just, I, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that um, the most, to me, stunning result of, this, of the entire tournament was that Kuznetsova was Nyaki result. Mm. that was by far the best clay court match Caroline Wozniacki has ever played in her life. And that was very, very, very much not anything close to that first. <laughs> <Anna> <laughs> um, and I, th- and I just thought it was, it was disappointing, you know, just for, for Sveta, um, you know, a great result for, for Waz, but um, Kuznetsova, yeah, she had a shot here just like everybody else. I mean, she, she, she was definitely on our short list of favorites and, you know, you, you kind of feel like once she gets herself into that second week, she she's right there. But it's it's a matter of getting there. And, uh, yeah, overall, I mean, arguably a bit of a disappointing clay season for Sveta. Has to be said. I completely agree. Yeah, so a bit bummed about that. I, yeah. I love I love me some, Sve- some Sveta. And I love, like, I love that she's relevant again. And I want her to stay relevant. Because... Yeah put a mic in front of that one and you get some great stuff and i think you're completely right though and she's one of those players who um and i guess the last few years or last couple years anyway gets you know has been trending up and getting back into the top 10 things like that but i think this has to be a moment where we're like come on sveta like this result was not good and wtf i think it's i think a wtf is in order for maybe maybe not her whole clay season but certainly that was nyaki loss it was just like sort of head against the wall. What is going on here? And and Wozniacki maybe is that wall and did and did play like you said really well. And Wozniacki isn't at her best on grass. She's done okay in Eastbourne, but never at Wimbledon. Um, but she's someone who I think is still in good position to make, in terms of her form, definitely be like in the Singapore running and to continue it onto the hard courts. I think she's you know a bit under the radar for at the biggest events. I guess. I think that makes sense. Maybe not. She made Miami final, but overall her year has been really, really solid. So good for her. Yeah. I mean, what is it? Four, four finals, Mm -hmm. no titles. I mean, it's absurd, like as well as she's played that she hasn't won a title this year, which is just weird. Four finals, maybe three finals. Um, Doha, Dubai, Miami. Yeah, that's right. All right. That's three. Nothing after that. Didn't okay. do it in yeah that's right so three okay um but yeah it's it's a bit absurd um because she's played better than that but but yeah definitely not a player that anyone would expect much of you know on clay and and grass so I think the the run in Paris is you know it's kind of one of those Pliskova situations where you're like yep I'll take those points thank you very much exactly um you know and and you move on and and but uh, but yeah I mean 
it seems like a bit of a broken record to constantly say it, but it is true. Like, I think that things are teeing, are, are shaping up really interestingly for the hard court season. Grass and Wimbledon, I feel like it's, I mean, if it isn't it more open than the French, than the French, I kind of feel like. Uh, it's different open. It's a different set of, con- of shortlist content on like this short, shortlist. Yeah, it's different. Like, but Pl- it's like no... Pliskova, Venus, uh, Kanta, obviously are all more relevant on grass. Why, why, um, why, 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 why would anyone think that Kanta would do well at Wimbledon? She would not be on my shortlist at all. Oh, I disagree with that. I think she'll do well. I don't think she's ever been somebody who's been bad at home. Has she? I mean, her okay. Wimbledon track record since she got good, I think it's fine. Like, she lost to Sharapova and Bouchard, I think, at her Wimbledon matches. I don't think those were bad losses, either of them. I, I, it'll be a different list, but I think it'll still be, as Renko will be in the mix uh, at some level. She's a new face rejoining tour this week in Mallorca. Uh, I don't think she'll be ready to win Wimbledon. I don't, think, I, don't think I don't think that's a fair expectation at all. But um, she'll be back, hopefully, maybe rounding into form by the U.S. Open, which will still be fast, but we'll see. Uh, same goes for Kvitova. I think it's way too early to expect anything from Kvitova, but she'll also be there. Um, yeah, it'll be a interesting tournament for sure. But I think you're right. I think Harcourts is maybe where we'll see things take shape a little more, or maybe just you know, everyone. It's the most. It's the tour's neutral surface, and so I think things will play out with that with fewer fewer variables. Um. Any other any other thoughts, French Open or otherwise? Mm-mm. No, not really. That was a lot. That was a lot. <laughs> we had a lot. It's a whole slam. We didn't do a show during the, the French, so a lot to catch up on. Um, and thank you guys for listening to all of that. Uh, if you want to follow along when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Podcast. Follow us at ncr underscore tennis. Send us emails, no challenges remaining, at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and any other podcast service of your choice and leave us reviews there, wherever there may be. We appreciate that quite a bit. Uh, Courtney, anything got you feeling strongly about things one way or another as you come back home? <clears throat> Sleep is good. <laughs> it's very, it's very underrated as a, as a thing by me sometimes, but it's been good having a week off to just kind of completely, uh, decompress and unplug and just not talk to other human beings, which sounds like terrible, but I just needed that after two weeks of doing radio and interviews and everything for yeah. whatever. Uh, so that was quite nice. But no, uh, nothing new on this end. Um, what was what I What did you watch to... on the plane? Oh, so I watched Pacific Rim, which was good. Finally, I my sister has been telling me to watch it for a while. And I just didn't, I just was never in the mood, but this time I finally was. So I watched that and it's great because it's true. Like when's the last time you remember like an actual, like non-franchise, non-based um, off a comic book, like purely original sci-fi action movie. And so Pacific Rim was great and um, I loved it. It was, it was really good. I watched The Accountant uh, with Ben Affleck. Oh, okay. Which was fine. I don't really know I how heard to buy any of that, it. Yeah. yeah, I don't buy the premise of it at all, but it was perfectly <laughs> well acted and the action scenes were cool. But the premise is so stupid. Um, yeah, and then I watched like Masterminds again, which I love. <laughs> I can't help it. It's so stupid. <laughs> I just love it so much. Um, yeah, so that was my that was my plane home. Slept a lot on that. But otherwise, no, I've just been playing video games or not video games, uh, board games. 
since I've been home, uh, about a few games that I had been, I had bought and never got a time to like sit down and do. I gotta say, I think I said this before. If, if people ever, if I ever leave tennis, Mm-hmm. I would genuinely consider going into writing the manuals for board games. Okay. Because the, whoever writes these things, I'm sorry, y'all create g- great games. You guys can't explain shit. Like, none of it makes sense. None of it is organized well. And I'm playing these, I tried playing these two games that are like pretty complicated. Like, they're two of the more complicated games, board games that have come out in the last like five, six, seven years. Um, And just like, it took me, I played one, yeah, I played one yesterday, Mage Night, and it took me like, let's see, I set it up at around three, and I was still in the midst of the first game by like 9.30. Mm. So six hours, where I would sit there and be like, okay, wait, okay, so I got to do this next, and then I get pull a card, I'm looking at the card, and I'm like, I do not know what this is telling me to do, and I don't know what I can do, what I can't do, what rules are triggered by what. Well, it's all a game very, very that frustrating. Was like- translated from another language no no no. it's an american game mm. Mm. um so yeah so that and and I'm, I'm currently learning and playing robinson crusoe which is and both those games are like legendary like board games um and they're amazing once you like know all the rules and can play them and i can already see it i'm like okay i get it oh, okay next time i'll do this oh, okay now i understand that mechanism and whatever but the manuals which are already so thick like don't don't tell you anything and it's like really really obnoxious but anyways so that's my 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 rant uh but uh but my rave um is if you've never heard of it and want to play like a game that's like super low stress and like really fun fun to play with like friends or it's a good couples game probably is a game called viticulture okay so it's basically you are uh you own a vineyard in Tuscany um and you're the whole point of the thing is to make wine and so you got to like do worker placement like you got to uh you know get money in order to buy buildings and then you have to like get orders and fill the orders and you have to make sure that the wines have been aged a certain level so that because the person's ordered like I don't know a bottle of like seven like a, a a level of like seven white and a nine red. And so you have to make sure that the, the stuff ages and you have to like plant the vines and it's a board game different... or a video game board game. Oh, that's it sounds hard as a board game. I can imagine this is like a video, one of those, like, you know, you've seen those video games that are like, yeah, like farming baker, simulator bakery kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just whatever. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. No, it's a board game. Hmm. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it, it really worked well. It was a game that like, it took me a while to set up and it took me a while to like understand the order of operations and what, was going on and and like just all board games like once you figure out the mechanics and once you figure out what things are trying to do but it does a very good job of like actually like thinking through like winemaking like so like things that like seem instinctual actually are the right move to make in the game you know what i mean like it's thematically accurate um so yeah so it's really fun i enjoy it i might take it with me to england okay it'd be a nice like soothing way as opposed to like Mage Knight or Robinson Crusoe, which are stressing me out right now. Um, but Robinson, but uh, Viticulture, very fun. Very good. Um, so my rave will be um, for a couple of things, I guess, I've saved up. I've been playing a lot of this um, iPhone game called Score Hero, which is a soccer game, which is very odd for me, I realize. Um, but it's good. My sort of rant about it is that it's like a, freemium game where you like have to like annoyingly have to like oh wait you know 
15 minutes to get new lives in it or something or you know or pay 2.99 to speed that up and i would just like happily pay like a flat sum of 20 dollars not to have to do that or something get like this whole game free so that consumer model annoys me even while i still enjoy the product and the gameplay you just try to score set up plays and work your way down the field to score soccer goals um and sort of you draw paths of where passes go and it's all very uh graceful and nice so i enjoy that um other phone related raves i just got the kindle app for my phone which i hadn't oh, had before big time. um i have a kindle but having the kindle app just makes it like you have your kindle all the time with you and just whatever you know as much as people are purists about reading books as books uh there's just nothing nice about having that wherever you go and looking at a screen isn't the worst thing in the world better than not reading at all exactly so, it's reading yeah so yeah i recommend that if you do that um I, and obviously with twitter i mean so much of twitter is just reading and so much of clicking links and reading articles is that too but just a nice way to transport books into that level and have books be that sort of accessible um and then one book which i actually read i brought over as a print copy because my sister gave it to me a couple months ago um because it was like part of some book of the month club or something it's this book called behind her eyes by sarah pinborough and if anyone else has read this book please contact me <laughs> because <laughs> i have strong feelings that are very spoilery about the way it ends and i've seen a little of this discussion online but i just want to have like a, another conversation with someone um if you've read this book or if you feel it's, it's a quick read it's it's fairly um trashy but if you feel like reading this and having discussing it, just know that <laughs> I've never been just so just like, I've never, I don't want to even to say what my reaction was to this ending, but it was strong. Um, Ooh, so, so yeah, so that's hopefully a good teaser for this book. Um, it's, which is not an amazing book, I don't think, but it's at least something that will provoke feelings. And if all we ever really want in this world is just to feel things and this, this will, this will do that. Um, yeah, that's, that's about it. Those are my, those are my thoughts and dealings. Um, heading to grass soon. I'm going to Mallorca. Courtney, you're going to Eastbourne. That is and correct. We will, and we will reunite in uh, Wimbledon. And we'll do, hopefully do a show, or I'll do some sort of show from Mallorca or something uh, in the meantime there. And we will see you guys then, or you'll hear from us then. Bye-bye. Ta-ta. <laughs>